www.explorationstation.com No EX, just Exploration Station, one word, dot com. We're going to go there and listen to Samuel Borer, B-O-R-E-R. Is 25 years old and as long as he can remember he's wanted to be an astronaut now he's about to start medical school and his goal is to train to become one of the first humans on Mars quote this past astronaut class had a doctor currently going through surgical residency who was accepted into the astronaut program said Borer today Sam is visiting with his father at his home in Hawaii he has some news for him below is a transcript of the conversation that Samuel had with his father revealing his plans to become one of the first humans to visit Mars. We're going to play the audio, but they also have the video. It's a um, two minute and 52 second video of their regular program it's a su- subscription-based program, but we're going to listen to just a couple minutes of it. Samuel Bohr is 25 years old and wants to be one of those explorer fish. 
For as long as he can remember, he's wanted to be an astronaut. Now, he's about to start medical school. This past astronaut class had a doctor currently going through surgical residency who was accepted into the astronaut program. Today, Sam is visiting with his father at his home in Hawaii. He has some news for him. Have you ever heard of the high seas program here on the island? High seas program, no. Actually, it's just right over there in, on Mauna Loa. And it's a simulated Mars environment. <laughs> mimics what the habitat might look like when we actually go and live on Mars. They set up a crew of 10 people on these missions. They want to see how does that look if you were to live in a small, kind of isolated space for months at a time. I've heard of the idea of something like that. Yeah. But why, why do you bring it up? It's something that I'm probably going to apply for as I get closer and closer to being in a competitive age for shooting for astronauts. So the people that go to this, I mean, they're selected or they're applying? Exactly. So it's someone who eventually at some point in their, in their life or career wants to kind of pursue that route of, of isolated space travel and kind of have to deal with the situation that they present them with being isolated in a habitat for eight months at a time. It's a long yeah. time. It is a long time. But, I mean, when you think about going to Mars, I mean, that's indefinite. For at least, I don't think about going to Mars. A while, yeah. I think about going to Mars quite a bit, actually. You think about going somewhere where you'd be gone forever? Yeah. To be able to be one of the very first human beings to ever live on another planet mm -hmm. and pave that way forward for the rest of humanity, to me, that sacrifice is worth it. From a standpoint of like myself and your mother. There's probably work to be done here. We would way prefer you to be doing that work down here. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, we would support you if you right. did something like that. But, boy, the selfishness of myself and mom would be right. There is a, a level of selfishness on my part. I and mean, I think anyone who takes this journey is a little bit selfish. I mean, that would be to the extreme. Of it would be to the extreme. It would be a tough sell for your mother, I think. I think so, too. Amazing 
elephant's toothpaste at home. Make your own colorful lava lamp. Man soothes NASA for landing on his asteroid. On his asteroid. <laughs> Steve Spangler experiment. Make fun DIY slime with these simple ingredients. This is the classic egg in a bottle tread. And microwave your soap. Oh, yeah. Next on Exploration Station, humans are in a explorers. Species of human emerges on Mars. Let's click on that one. With robotics leading the way, humans setting foot on Mars is also within reach. Jim Caravalla, CEO and co-founder of the space exploration robotics company Offworld believes humans landing on Mars is closer than you might think. Quote, I think 15 to 20 years is the closest accelerated potential. There are recent discoveries of the nature at the surface that suggests that it is extremely toxic to biological life so there are a lot of things to deal with watch this episode of life 2.0 once humans reach Mars where will they settle oh they have quite a few here Dr. Kirsten Sabak planetary geologist at Rice University studies the red planet for potential habitable areas quote we think there are actually lava tubes on Mars and that could be a place where the lava would protect your colonists from some of the radiation said Dr. Sabak and will a new species evolve? Oh, this this uh, this website really rocks. I could go on and read all, <laughs> read it all. <laughs> Again, that's at www x the letter x p l o R A T I O N S T A T I O N dot com. Thank you for listening.
Demichio Kaku, M-I-C-H-I-O, Michio, Michio, Kaku, excuse me, Kaku, K-A-K-U. Here's the post that goes with that, um, the science video we just heard about Mars and the medical doctor that wants to go to Mars and when when he finishes his his MD. Dr. Michio Kaku wrote September 2nd at 9.12 p.m. Don't miss the series premiere this weekend of Life 2.0, a high-end documentary series that takes a deep and thought-provoking dive into a variety of topics, such as the future of human life extension, breakthroughs in interspecies communication, the rise of, quote, cyborgism, C-Y-B-O-R-G-I-S-M, cyborgism, cyborgism, excuse me, existing in virtual reality and more. Exploration Station New Series This Weekend Premieres Across The Country This Weekend Our New Documentary Series Life 2.0 Premieres Across The Country Life 2.0 Explores How Incredible scientific and technology. Life 2.0 explores how incredible scientific and technological breakthroughs will impact us all in the future. How to watch Life 2.0 on our website https colon slash slash www dot x p l o r a t i o n station s t a t i o n dot com forward slash Show S H O W forward slash life dash two dot zero. And they have a little video here. We can listen to that again.
Ever wonder what the future may hold? One day, we will make contact with an extraterrestrial civilization. From the development of cyborg technologies. I am a cybernetic organism, biologically and psychologically. To the possibility of eternal life. In my lab, we ask, why do we age? And then, how reversible is it? See what the future has in store on Life 2.0. Civilization. Discussion with Dr. Michio Kaku. Pete, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm good. How are you doing? You seem surprised that I'm asking you how you're doing. Yeah, it's just an odd way to start. I not know you say it every week, but it, it seemed like you were putting me on the spot for some reason. Well, I mean, in this case, I was actually concerned. I am concerned with how you're doing, but more in the context of energy. How are you feeling energetically? Uh, well, I mean, here we're sitting in August of 2020, and uh, just is this the tail end of the pandemic? Really? I don't know. Uh, I think like a lot of people who are working from home, not everybody's working from home, but I am. A lot of people are taxed. They're, uh, they're, they've expended a lot of their energy. They're low. And I mean, I think most people would answer the question the same way. Most people feel they don't have enough energy. They could use more energy because at the end, we're all energy, including our planet. Okay, now I see where you're going with this. You're talking about, and because of probably the uh, the topic of today's show, everything is energy. Everything is energy, and in this case, how planets are sort of categorized according to the Kardashev scale, which is something we'll get into later, there are type 1, type 2, type 3 civilizations, and it's according to how much energy they can harness from, in this case, type 2, that you can harness from the sun. I, we have done a few Kardashev scale-like videos on uh, What If, um, and I don't recall, are we a type 1? Well, bad news. We're not a type 1 yet. We're actually type 0, which is not <laughs> something that is, Yeah, it feels depressing, but we have nowhere to go but up, Okay. which is another way <laughs> yeah. to look at it. It's kind of like type 2 would be more like solar power on steroids. Okay, solar power on steroids. So it's like the sun... 
but we're getting all of our power from the sun. We're able to harness all that power from the sun. Which and, and which, store it, too. Yes, right? and store it, which, as you can imagine, would allow us to do a whole bunch of things, not things that I would necessarily understand, nor did I really understand this prior to probably hours ago. But that's why we have guests on the show, because we want people to be able to come on and explain some of these complicated topics, like what if Earth became a Type 2 civilization. And in this case, we're lucky enough to have somebody who's a bit of an expert on the subject and who we've also had on the show before. Yeah, we have. It's uh, Professor Michio Kaku, who's extremely uh, smart and well-respected and, and followed by a lot of people. And really one of the people who are most cited and quoted when you're talking about today's what if. What if the Earth became a Type 2 civilization? Michio Kaku is known as a futurist, a great communicator, and a popularizer of science. He first graduated summa cum laude from Harvard University in 1968 and received his Ph.D. from Berkeley in 1972. Kaku has expertise in several fields, such as hadronic physics, supersymmetry, supergravity, superstring theory, <laughs> superquantum, no, not superquantum physics, just quantum physics. He's also quite the media maven, with multiple best-selling books to his name, including his most recent, The Future of Humanity. He also hosts two radio shows and appears regularly in television series exploring space, physics, and the future. He's currently the City College of New York's Henry Seamat Professor of Theoretical Physics, where he's been teaching for 35 years. Professor Kaku, welcome back to What If Discussed. Glad to be on the show. And we're always glad to have you. And yeah, for sure. as Peter and I talked about off the top, it's... It's a complicated subject, this type 1, type 2 civilizations, if you don't know the Kardashev scale. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, I think we did our best to try to understand and explain it, but this is why you're here, because obviously this is something that you're considered uh, one of the experts on this planet. So, first of all, please clarify, what is the Kardashev scale and what is a type 1, type 2, type 3 civilization? Well... We physicists are tired of talking about flying saucers and little green men and speculating about life in space. I'm a physicist. We use energy. Energy. Oh. Oh. Sorry about to that. To rank civilizations in outer space. A type one civilization is planetary. They consume all the energy that they receive from the sun. For example, they control the weather. A type two is stellar. They control all the energy output of the mother sun, sort of like the Federation of Planets in Star Trek. They colonize a few of the neighboring planets, neighboring star systems, but not much more. Then there's type three. Type three is galactic. They roam the galactic space lanes. They can harness the energy of a hundred billion stars in the galaxy, sort of like uh, Star Wars. Star Wars would be an example of a type three galactic civilization. Now, what are we? Do we play with the weather, play with volcanoes, and play with earthquakes? Do we play with the sun? Do we play with black holes throughout the galaxy? No. We are type zero. <laughs> We don't even rate on this scale. It's we get our energy from dead plants, oil, and coal. 
we are about a hundred years away from attaining type one status. For example, the internet. What is the internet? It is the first type one telephone system to be unleashed in this century. Hmm. What language will this type one civilization speak? Well, already English and Mandarin Chinese are the two greatest languages on the internet. And what is the European Union? What is NAFTA? What are all these trade blocks? The beginning of a primitive type one planetary economy. Now, if you keep the scale up, at what point will we attain type two status? That is, leave this solar system and start to explore the nearby stars. Well, you just take out a slide rule or a calculator. You can calculate that in just a few thousand years, we will be type two, like Captain Kirk. <laughs> now, Captain Kirk lives in the 23rd century, so that's about right. Uh, a little early, but still well on the scale that Nikolai Kardashev formulated in the 1960s. Then you hit type three in about 100,000 years. Wow. And why is that? Because that's the energy that you attain, the Planck energy. The Planck energy is the energy of space-time. It's when space becomes unstable, wormholes develop, black holes, gateway, hyperspatial gateways through space and time. That's the Planck energy. The Planck energy is a quadrillion times more powerful than the Large Hadron Collider outside Geneva, Switzerland. And why do I mention that? Because once you attain the Planck energy, wormholes, maybe even time travel, is a possibility. Wow. <laughs> um, let's bring it back down to Earth and, uh, and uh, <laughs> talk about Type 2. I, I was asking off the top whether a Type 2 civilization was simply like solar power on steroids. <laughs> now, I know you're not going to quote me in your next book uh, as a genius insight, but uh, how close is that idea to to uh, what type two means? Well, type two does not mean simply getting sunlight from the sun. It means playing with the sun itself. For example, a Dyson sphere would envelop the entire sun with a sphere to absorb 100% of the energy output of a star. That's a Dyson sphere. And astronomers think that, well, we're not sure, but we may have the signals from some potential candidates of being a type two civilization in outer space. There's a star called Tabby star, which drops in intensity by about 25%. Some people think that maybe a gigantic Jupiter-sized planet moves in front of the star, mm. absorbing all its energy, and perhaps that is a Dyson sphere in outer space. But a type two civilization would be like Star Trek. The Federation of Planets, they've colonized a small quadrant of the galaxy, would be a type two civilization. Um, energy is something that we, I don't know, it, I don't mean we don't talk about energy because we talk about energy, but as important as energy is to our day-to-day -day lives and our functions in on this planet, survival, but even beyond, you'd think we'd have even more focus. I, I think we take it for granted, obviously, you just walk into a room, turn on a light switch, etc. But as you said earlier, we, we still are at a, a pretty primitive level of harnessing energy, which is, again, fossil fuels. How important is it that we, let's say, fast forward 
our harnessing of solar power to not only get to type two civilization one day, but to expedite the evolution of this species. <laughs> well, let's take a look at it historically. Throughout most of human history, or 99% of human history, we had about a quarter of a horsepower per person. The strength of your left hand and right hand, and that's it, folks. That was the energy output for most of human civilization, about a quarter of a horsepower. Then when we domesticated horses about 10,000 years ago, we went from a quarter of a horsepower to one horsepower, <laughs> and that began what is called civilization. Cities, armies, empires began to be formed. And then just 300 years ago, we discovered the steam engine. And as a consequence, we went from one horsepower to maybe 10 horsepower in a buggy, in a locomotive. <laughs> now, of course, you have access to thousands of horsepowers. And in fact, we're going to use that energy to rocket into outer space. So you see that the progress of civilization can be mapped by the progress in energy harnessing that we've been able to harness thousands of horsepowers for one astronaut, while before it was only the strength of your left hand and your right hand. Now, you mentioned energy sources of the future. Solar is one, but there's another one I think that is even more important, and that's fusion power. Now, fusion power is still a few decades away, but fusion power is the power of the universe. Wow, wow. It's what makes the sunshine. It's what makes the stars twinkle. And we're going to be able to, I think, in a few decades, harness that fusion power on the planet Earth to give us unlimited amounts of energy from seawater. Seawater is the basic fuel for fusion plants. And we have one in France. It's called the ITER fusion reactor in Kardash, France, built by the European Union with the help of the United States and Russia and Japan. And we hope to get fusion off the ground in the coming decades. Well, just so we book you in it far enough in advance, <laughs> I'd just like you to put in your calendar that when that happens, we'd like to have you back on the show. Because ideally, you, you and I would still be alive, Peter. We'd still be doing what if discussed. But uh, like right now, I would say let's just put a pin in that for now. <laughs> let's say we jump in the time machine and go right there, the what if time machine. Peter, start it up. Yes, we haven't used it in a while. So let's say all the theoreticals are behind us. We are now at that point where we are a type two civilization. What are some of the kind of cool things that people would be sort of fascinated by that a type two civilization as Earth would be able to do, whether it's controlling the weather, the atmosphere, uh, you know, blowing asteroids out of the sky? Like, what are some <laughs> of the things that we should be able to expect uh, as a type two civilization? Well, remember, now we're talking about centuries to maybe a thousand years into the future. Well, we have pretty much colonized the entire solar system out to Pluto and maybe out to the nearby stars. Uh, we're going to build the first starship, perhaps within 100, 200 years. NASA already has the 100-year star, starship program looking at potential propulsion systems for a starship. Uh, for example, antimatter engines, uh, fusion engines, um, even ramjet fusion engines. These are all possible engines for starships. Now, we're not talking warp drive. To get warp drive, you'd have to be type 3. But by the time you're type uh, 1 and aspiring toward type 2, this means building the first starships. 
So we're going to go far beyond the solar system and reach out to the nearby stars. There's even a program called the Breakthrough Starshot Program. Uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, my late colleague, was a member of that program. And he believed that, yes, we should build the first starship. Not in a few hundred years, but in this century, just in this century, build the first starship. Well, uh, one of the great things about having you is that regardless of where we're at, individually or collectively, I'm always optimistic and excited after I, I speak to Michio Kaku because you see the future in such a way that is, uh, especially in these times, uh, encouraging and exciting and, yeah. and, and gives us a reason to sort of, you know, look forward beyond our sort of day-to-day -day problems and be excited. About it's, in, it's interesting because we talked about, you know, Homo sapiens being around for 200,000 years yes. and Professor Kaku saying, you know, all you had for power was... You know, half a horsepower, <laughs> yes. and now we're a hundred years away, probably. Of, yes. Of and I mean, a hundred years away, we couldn't fly, or, or sorry, a hundred, you know, a little over a hundred years ago, we couldn't fly. So, and then, you know, fifty years later, sixty years later, we're sending people to the moon. So, Incredible. as as you are always adept at doing, you get us sort of steered in the right direction. We're going to have uh, Professor Kaku on later. If you want to listen to this full, in-depth interview beyond our conversation that we just had, click on the link below because a special treat. We are going to be breaking down uh, your most recent New York Times bestseller, The Future of Humanity. I don't think it's overstating it to say that this is one of those times where you want to be thinking about the future of humanity, but especially the insights and the visionary uh, perspectives that you have in the book. Give us a little idea of what we're going to be hearing about uh, and what people can expect to find in the book, The Future of Humanity. Well, you know, the, the dinosaurs did not have a space program. That's <laughs> why they're not here today. There are no dinosaurs joining us for this interview today because they got wiped out. They were clueless. They didn't know what hit them. Well, we do have a space program, and it's inevitable that we're going to have crises. For example, volcanic eruptions, meteor impacts, pandemics. We know they're going to be crises of the future, and we need an insurance policy. An insurance policy to make sure that humanity survives no matter what catastrophes uh, hit the planet Earth. And the main stumbling block preventing that was a four-letter dirty word, cost. It cost $10,000 to put a pound of anything into orbit around the planet Earth. That's your weight in gold. Think of your body made out of solid gold. That's what it costs just to put you in orbit around the planet Earth. Well, now... Prices are dropping because Elon Musk and others are perfecting the reusable rocket because of competition, because of private public collaboration. The price of space travel is dropping like a rock. This means that in the future, mom and dad may be able to go to outer space. And I would even predict that our grandkids may have the option of honeymooning on the moon. Cool. Not the dark side of the moon, though, because that's not a good way to start a relationship. A more private. Um, so again, more with Dr. Kaku uh, about everything future of humanity. You don't want to miss this. So click on the link below and you're going to get a really in-depth dive into a rabbit hole that's going to cover so many topics about the short, medium and long term future of humanity on this planet. Uh, Dr. Kaku talked about insurance policies, Peter. 
It sounds like the perfect segue to talk about our friends at Policy Genius. Well, Dr. Professor Kaku is not necessarily an insurance uh, salesman, um, but... Uh, He's a genius. <laughs> well, you got a sample. If you never heard of Dr. Michio Kaku, you've heard him for yourself. And the program is called What If. It's on YouTube. And it has 4.28 million subscribers. If you check um, the title discussed, what if we became a type 2 civilization with Michio Kaku? If you type that in, you should Go right to the What If program. Well, it's good to know that Dr. Kaku is still doing radio programs and other media because he... You speak of rabbit holes, he'll take you to rabbit holes and you, oh, you will get the ride of your life. There's no doubt about that. Well, now this California desert has warmed up considerably just since in the last couple of hours. It feels at least 10 degrees warmer. <laughs> and that's conservative. I want to say 20, but I have to check it first. It's just like they predicted. It's going to be extreme heat this weekend. Well, now you know. You're warned, if you ever want to come to California, you will be ready. Thank you for listening.